0: Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast. In my case, the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we'd like to pay our respect to their elders past and present.
1: And we'd also like to pay our respects to the elders of the Nanawo and Ngambri peoples past and present.
0: All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to the Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you again back in our bedrooms. I'm your Familiar Stranger today, Alex, together with my fellow Familiar Strangers, Ruanan. Hiya. Erina. Hello. And one of our newest members, Sean. Hi everyone. Now, before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook Chats group? Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook, and provide some valuable insight into today's episode. So, Sean, you're one of the newest members of The Familiar Strange. Welcome to the project. You're just finishing up your PhD research. that right?
2: Uh just finished two weeks ago, actually.
0: Ah, congratulations. Submitted? Yay! Uh,
2: submitted and doctorified, yes.
0: And Doctorify, that was fast.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I submitted a, about over a year ago in February, and then it's uh, been a long process until uh, the final submission and the, the Viva. So, yeah, happy to have gone through it and, and passed with uh, no corrections.
0: Congratulations, with no corrections. That's amazing. Well, well done. Well, your research is on anthropology and sport, which is a super cool topic. And I don't believe i have had anyone on the program to talk about that. So can you talk us through your research a little?
2: Yeah, certainly. So my research broadly within the anthropology of sport, sort of a a sub-sub-discipline hidden in the corner, I focus on swimming and bodies in water. So over the past couple of years in the UK, I've been studying competitive youth swimmers, looking around questions of embodiment, identity, uh, and what it means to become and belong a, a youth in competitive swimming. I take a particularly sort of sensory tract to exploring what it means to be human in bodies of water. So looking at different immersed senses of being. So whether that's sort of the tactile, the emotional, or the social.
1: I'm quite interested in the body in the water parts. What's the difference between the body in the water and the body out of the water from your perspective? Apart from being wet.
2: Apart from being wet. (laughs) Thank you. Actually, that is an interesting thing that I do follow up uh, in some of my research. The, the, the physical act of being wet is, is a process of being out of immersion, actually. So to be wet, one has to not be submerged. Funny, but probably not relevant yeah, that's cool. <laughs> broadly. Um, when I talk about like what, what's the difference between being in or being not in, I mean, if you think of our, our everyday mm-hmm. experiences and phenomenological experiences of walking around and moving in the world, we are actually at all times immersed. But we are just immersed in the atmosphere or in air right or in the weather one might say so in this way looking at water in particular and immersion in water provides a completely different medium of being to most people's sort of everyday interactions but competitive youth swimmers and those involved in competitive swimming activities immerse themselves upwards of 25 hours a week in the pool so it really shifts their way of of being so they're spending a significant portion of their existence as human beings as sort of amphibious is one way that one might think of it.
3: That's kind of what I wanted to like remark on as well, because like we always say that humans are land animals, you know, I don't know, just thinking about the environment, people say cultures like air, which surrounds us all the time, something like this, but like looking at humans in a totally different environment, such as water, it really is like looking at animals in a environment, which is not designed for them, but who Anyway, like adapting to it by like becoming a better competitive swimmers, by enjoying it, enjoying spending time there and just building familiarity with this unfamiliar, well, biologically speaking, I guess, environment. So this is really interesting. May I, may I ask, how did you come up with this idea?
2: Yeah, I came up with this idea. Actually, it was sort of generated out of the, the field research itself from uh, my work with the, with the competitive youth swimmers. Just being on the pool deck and being around them for such a long period of time, they started questioning why I wasn't in the water, why why I wasn't immersing myself in the sort of daily rhythms and practices uh, of training and competition. So after a while, I I did. I, I took, took up their cajoling and their sort of Joking prompting for me to get in the water and experience that for myself. And over time through training and practice with the master squad, because there's no way I could uh, compete with a bunch of 14 year olds. They're just <laughs> way too fast. That got me thinking along the lines of different forms of immersion. So thinking about some of the anthropological literature, looking at Japanese Whitman divers, looking at the Bajau people and the Makan and other well, uh, South Pacific free divers and things like that. And so that sort of connection with immersion and what it sort of means to be in the water, more broadly speaking, from a comparative anthropological perspective, sort of, yeah, got me then circularly connected back to immersion and what might that mean for these youth in sort of modern neoliberal capitalist society.
0: Awesome. And what does, I've got to ask the question, so what does it mean for them?
2: It means a lot of things. You know, your whole thesis <laughs> yeah. in a couple of sentences. <laughs> Easy to, it's to do. Fine. It means it means a lot of things for them for them club is in some ways synonymous with family it provides a social space that is often more congenial to close relationships than with some of their peers who are at school or in other sports they talk significantly about how their non-swimming friends don't understand their being in the world they don't understand this commitment this dedication This sort of love of being immersed materially and socially in a swimming environment, what it means to be in the water for dozens of hours a week, to be immersed, to move in that fluid environment, to feel one's body in those different ways. So there's, I guess, sort of a a mutual understanding of a community of practice.
1: I have a question here about the body immersed in the water. So for them, when they first start this swimming experience, when they first get into competitive swimming, do they have like the transition periods of like identify their body differently from before?
2: Yeah, so there's definitely a a somatic change in the doing of competitive swimming. These young swimmers, you know, many of us, we learned to swim before we can remember, don't really remember that transition from not being able to swim to being able to swim. And that's the case for many of these youth. But rather than potentially identifying a body that is fit for swimming in water what happened was the fit body for swimming in water was developed somatically through the doing of the activity so they sort of became competitive swimmer bodies and competitive swimmers through the practice of you know being in the water of swimming hundreds of lengths doing thousands or millions of shoulder rotations every year to pull them from one side of the pool to the other Um, so in this way their bodies are literally shaped through their activity so
1: what the body means
2: for them Uh, their body is well it's both a tool for accomplishing their goals of being able to win potentially of competing and it's also affords them the ability to be within this social and community space without the capacity to be able to swim fast like myself being unable to swim fast to the standards of the competitive group that i was researching i was in a way on the periphery of both their social, their emotional, and their material life worlds. So the body for them provides this this tool, this capacity to be able to be included within this social world. And it also helps sort of generate what that social uh, and emotional worlds are.
0: And I've got to ask, is it also significant? It's been a long time since I lived in the UK, a long time. But when I was there, I was surprised by the number of people I met who didn't know how to swim or could barely swim. It is not a swimming country and the cleat, not that every Australian knows how to swim, but it is the cliche and most Australians do know how to swim to a moderate capacity. First of all, I guess the question is, is that still the case or is that something that is well past everyone who is 14 now would know how to swim fairly well? And if not, Does that affect their sort of sense of self and identity?
2: Yeah, well, since 1996, there's been a national mandate for every child to be able to have some basic swim-to-survive skills when they leave elementary school. In actual practice, that Mm. is just not the case. There is not enough access Mm. to both public and private facilities for pools, instructors, or teachers within the public school system or without to be able to adequately educate the entire population. There's just not the, well, staffing. There's also not the resources, and there's not a push by larger governments to make this more continuous and more sustainable for the broader population. So statistics that I've seen are about one in six or one in five come out of elementary school, at minimum, being unable to swim. So, you know, for, for these youth wow. in the competitive swimming club where I was at, you know, swimming for them is, is normal. You know, they, they learn to swim as, well, before they can remember in a way, you know, when they were one, two, three years old, maybe going to parent and talk classes. And that is not a requirement and it's not mandatory to be in a, an island nation with a mandate or a national law that that says everyone should be able to swim, to survive about 25 meters. But then the reality on the ground is actually not a lot of people can and do in that way. Many of the open water sources, be it. Rivers, lakes, the ocean, uh present hazards, risks, or fear for many of the population. So a sort of interesting being in a in a seaside place where these youth had had access to all of these different open water possibilities for swimming, but they would prefer mostly to swim in the pool.
1: But why they prefer to swimming
2: in the pool? Uh, And this is something that I definitely like to explore now that I've sort of finished Mm -hmm. my PhD research and it's something that's brought up. It wasn't necessarily in the thesis itself, but some of these concerns and ideas around pollution and what that means. Some of these ideas too came out of the global pandemic that we're currently still in, especially during national lockdowns where pool water being chlorinated was seen as a, in scare quotes, clean safe space hygienic to be able to recreate so there was a a large push by the national governing body of swimming swim england to tell government to say open the pools for recreation spaces you know they're safer than other indoor activities and spaces so these questions concerning around pollution why pool water say versus why a river well i mean here on the on the southeast coast of the uk the water is quite Silty, so it doesn't have really good clarity. So when you're swimming in it, you can't see very far. And the experience of many of these youth being in a pool for so many hours is crystal clear, vibrant clarity uh, in the water. So even just the perception of not being able to see as clearly, well, it, it brings up questions around different forms of pollution. What's in the water? What is the quality of water? And how youth perceive that, you know? Yeah, so these are just some of the questions that I'm pondering around pollution would like to, to bring forward and, and to see what this what this means for different spaces, not just for in pools, but maybe for other outside and outdoor swimming spaces like rivers, like lakes, like the ocean.
0: Well, I'd love to keep talking about this, but I think it's time we move on to the next topic. Speaking about lack of clarity, Ruanan, you've been thinking a bit about the political turmoil at the moment?
1: That's the big trends recently happening all over I'm totally shocked about all the chaotic things happening in different countries. Like the UK, the prime minister resigns. The French prime minister get involved with this scandal with Uber. Sri Lanka, the whole government like turns the country over. And then Japan, the ex-prime minister got assassins. So at this time of crisis and turmoil, I feel like what's the meaning or the function of doing anthropology? How can anthropology be applied in the words of change, of dramatic, dramatic change?
3: times like this we really need to remember one of the fields of anthropology which is called anthropology of conflict and crisis. This like a field of anthropology studies how societies respond to the situations of crisis, how they deal with the intense uncertainty of the times when they cannot control what is going on and it feels like we are now living exactly at this time when anthropology, well this type of anthropology is very applicable and very practical for us to look at what is happening. For the past several years, we've been living in such a dramatically changing world where all we knew that life was, it just ceased to exist. It's all in the air right now and we don't know what's going on. And I think it's not a surprise to see like so many people express their anger to the only people they feel they can blame is their government because it was their government who kind of try to regulate the COVID response, maybe the political turmoils of these times, economic response of these times. But when such dramatic events happen, it's it's very difficult to deal with these situations. So I think that people still need to find someone to blame.
0: Yeah, Irina, you raised some really interesting topics there. I mean, to start with, framing it around change and uncertainty is interesting, considering, you know, the very old, old anthropology was framed in the ethnographic present, where we were talking about primitive societies and how they are, as if these people were unchanging from the past, as if the so-and-so people are like this, their ceremonies are like that, and as if those peoples, you know, they're often treated as a glimpse into the primitive past of humanity or something. And for a discipline that was sort of based in that idea to now to have to grapple with extreme change, I think does present a challenge to anthropology. But then, Moving, Irina, to your idea of blame, of course, My when you said the word blame, my mind, of course, went to Evans Pritchard, the classic witchcraft, as a way to kind of blame people for certain aspects, but as also a way of releasing societal tensions. Supposedly, I mean, that is also critiqued, I should be clear, but nevertheless, as an idea, I think you're actually touching upon a similar topic, albeit through Vax mandates and government conspiracy rather than witchcraft but i wonder if there's similar similar kind of emotions underneath it all
3: i'd say this is very similar topics that you are talking about because uh, what is witchcraft and magic is something that people don't understand but they assume that it exists and with conspiracy theories this is exactly the same thing that people don't know what it is but they feel this just feeling out of control and that something might be happening that they don't know so this feeling of paranoia is probably is a very strong emotion that people might be experiencing during these times
2: well in the age of the anthropocene epoch where everything is tumultuous and we're experiencing such rapid change and transition in all of our lives that it makes me think of you know questions around well control how do people grapple with the change and the unknowable in their lives right and in many ways that's about creating some form of of control and through witchcraft and through magic people have a way of explaining the i guess sort of unexplainable or at least grappling with different ways of of conceiving of their their life worlds and we are you know i guess looking back at some of the more traditional anthropological literature on, on witchcraft we don't necessarily have a a similar idea in well not idea but um thing in, in modern western society to point to to say this is witchcraft, this is how we sort of explain the changes that are happening.
1: I'm thinking about the words life words because like recently I'm reading her soul as explanation on life words about these prehistorical words that people experiencing and as a structure to understand the words, And in a chaotic world, like the world at the moment, it is hard for people in general to find a structure to explain what the life was we are living at the moment.
2: Maybe picking up on that, Ronan, so much of you know what we sort of experience in the West or we, we try and rationalize, these changes, right? And we try and think of them in a very rational, logical, sort of structured fashion. And I think that's where anthropology, in particular looking at people's life worlds of change and of crisis can shed some light on people's actual experiences and the way that they negotiate these various this conflicts and this strife, how they deal and manage with that and how that change and shifts, you know, societal understandings and their own personal Um, feelings around various forms of of crisis and and unease.
1: I totally agree with you, because rationalization is one of the roots of Western civilization, I'd say. And then, obviously, the word cannot be overgeneralized by rationalization. And then it left some space for anthropology to explore, to interpret why things happening in this way, rather than Happening in a totally logical way.
3: Uh, I guess it's just like generally what we're talking about about this uh, big political conflicts and weird turmoils, like with with everything which is happening, like from the assassinations of former prime ministers to the war in the middle of Europe. All of this just contributes to this terrible political mess, which touches lives of everyone in some way in our. Immensely interconnected world. So, I feel like as anthropologists, we may choose to look at each case individually, or we can choose to look at the whole picture as something bigger, as something which is also connected to each other. Such problems as uh, uncertainty in tomorrow, such problems as just, you know, economic problems and then, you know, social problems. So I guess that's why we keep talking about this idea of anthropology of conflicts and crisis and what is happening right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say, this isn't my field, but something that anthropology can do is kind of work out what the crisis is. Because I'd make a strong argument that all these things are only crises once they're experienced by people, right? Like an economic crisis is really only a crisis, I would argue, once people experience it, if a currency totally devalues on computer screens and on paper, but everyone's lives continue on, then I would not describe that as a real crisis. It's anthropology that sort of says, okay, but what does this mean to people? So when that, when the graph starts to plummet and you watch that line go down, what does that actually mean in people's lives? Does it represent a lack of perhaps choices and freedoms as people's purchasing power goes down and so they have limited choices into where they can live are they half more reduced in what they can do for work because if they're lucky enough to still have a job they better stay in that job there is no sense of oh i might try for a better job
1: yeah another point i want to bring up is like most of the time as a people like as a person was trying to Struggle through his or her personal life during this COVID nineteen era or post COVID nineteen era. I say still post, uh, still COVID nineteen era. Seems like all these politic, international politic issues, are quite far from our life, present life, our ex, the life that we're experiencing at the moment.
3: Yeah, well, I guess, you know, for me, international politics plays a very vital role in my life world. It's something that concerns me every day. It's something that I live with every day. And when I follow news, I know that every headline may have direct effect on me as Mm
2: -hmm. a citizen
3: of Russia. So it, it just feels like when we were younger, maybe 10 years ago, international politics didn't really concern us as much as they concern everyone these days because uh, nowadays it feels like our global society is tackling very similar issues and that's why people tend to uh, talk about it or cooperate or just make huge quarrels with each other
0: but do you think if we're going down the life world's root. Do you think that's just the life world of a younger person?
3: Possibly, Alex is right, but also I feel that these days everyone can say the names of the head of their states and names of the health ministers of their states, even if they're like studying in high school, wherever, uh, whereas when I was in high school I had no idea who are my ministers were, you know, and it feels like these days people are more aware of things.
0: Well, not everything is uncertain and unpredictable because we have to end the show there, I'm afraid. So I'd like to thank Ruanan. Thank you. I'd like to thank Irina.
1: Thanks.
0: And I'd like to thank Sean for appearing on his first panel. Thanks very much. And I've been your host, Alex. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com Tweet at TFSTweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro, special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.